We're continuing in Thessalonians here after our brief revelation hiatus last month. And if you remember the last time we spoke, we talked about the second coming of Christ and the fact that we are able as Christians to have hope in His return, that that event is something for the Christian that is a joyous event, and it's something that gives us hope. And um, the studies that we did in the book of Revelation, sort of not by design on my part, but sort of by sheer luck, obviously went well with this topic as we studied all the things that we did in that book and the whole end of times discussion and Trevor's premillennialism study and all those things. So hopefully these kind of piggyback on each other and really give us a, a decent understanding of what that event looks like. And hopefully you have hope in that after the study the last time. I do want to do a quick review since it's been a couple of months, but you might remember we talked about how as we've gone through this study in Thessalonians, he really wove this second coming conversation into the entire book. And you can cherry pick through all these chapters in it how he, how he referred to it. Waiting for his son from heaven, before our Lord Jesus at his coming, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all, this, all his saints. So all these things he's telling the Thessalonians and praising them for their behavior and their attitudes about the gospel and how they responded to the persecution that they were dealing with that was so stiff and so much in their face and how they behaved with that. All of this was in light of the coming of our Lord and how they could have hope in that. And so he went into chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians and really started talking about that event that we talked about last time. And you remember how we talked about it. He said, we don't want you to be uninformed about those that are asleep. Apparently they had had some misconceptions about some of their fellow Christians that had died in the Lord. And he said, we don't want you to be uninformed about that, and we certainly don't want you to grieve about that as those do that don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And we, that's what we talked about, that hope that we have in his return. And the fact that Jesus died for our sins and the fact that he rose from that grave, we can have hope in that. And so when one of our brothers or sisters dies in the faith, we grieve their loss and we're going to miss them, but we don't grieve like those do that have no hope because we know there's something better awaiting them. And I hope that you have hope in his return. And as we finish that study, he said, then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Remember how he said, those who died in Christ will rise first. He's addressing their concerns about the dead. Those will rise first. Don't grieve about them. They get to rise first. And then those that haven't died in the Lord will be caught in the air and meet with him and be with him forever. And it's such a faith-building exercise to know that we can have hope in that event. And he transitions a little bit from his message of hope, though he's still trying to encourage them to kind of more of being ready for his return. And that's what we want to talk about today, being ready for that return. Certainly, we want to have hope in his return, but the only way to have hope in his return if we are properly prepared for that. And there's a lot of dialogue in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians and chapters 1 and chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. You might remember we spent a little time in 2 Thessalonians 2 last time talking about the man of sin and some of those types of things. And we're going to be in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians a little bit this morning in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. And hopefully I can convince you this morning the need to be ready for his return. I know that sounds a little bit like stating the obvious, but... Uh, this is a very important message for us, and it's something as Christians, again, that we should have hope and comfort in. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, 
I hope to convince you that you need to take a serious examination of that and look at your life and make some decisions regarding that this morning. And I hope you enjoy the study and are benefited and built up in the faith this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The first thing that we need to point out is the fact that you don't know when it's going to happen. And we alluded last time to the fact that men through all ages have attempted to make predictions about this event and when it'll happen and what it's going to look like, and the Scriptures lay it out for us. And the fact is, we don't know. And he describes it as it's going to come like a thief in the night. And you've got to remember here, as we read through these verses, as I think about especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but even the, the description that he uses here, talking about how it's such a sudden destruction that comes, that doesn't read in and of itself as an encouraging message. If you just pick those verses out and read them on their own, that's a pretty frightening story. The whole purpose of him having this dialogue with the Thessalonians is to comfort them. And so you have to read it in context. You have to understand the whole chapter. You've got to remember that he's comforting a group of Christians here. But he's also addressing the people that are persecuting them, those Jews that ran, them, ran Paul and the others out of Thessalonica and that are causing significant issues for the Thessalonians. They're causing them a lot of heartburn in life. And so he's telling them what's going to happen. It's going to come upon them like a thief in the night. It's going to punch them in the mouth. They're not going to be ready for it. And it's going to be like labor pains coming upon a woman. All of a sudden it hits and the time is near. We're ready to go. And that's the way he describes this. Matthew chapter 24, he uses some similar language here. And I recognize that Matthew chapter 24 is a bit of a, a tough chapter discussing really more about the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of the premillennialists hang on to this chapter a lot too. He uses the same language. So, and so I'm not trying to convince you this morning that this is or isn't talking about the second coming, but it's the exact same language about the thief in the night. And I want to use that metaphor to convince you of the importance of being ready. Listen to what he says. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not accept. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? If somebody advertises to us that they're going to break into our home and steal our belongings, hurt our children, murder us, we're going to be ready for that event. If we know which window they're coming through, we're going to do something to fortify that window. We're going to be sitting on the other side with a weapon or have the cops on standby or whatever it is we feel like we need to do to protect that. It's pretty easy for us to understand that, right? And that's how the day of the Lord is. You should be ready for that. If it's something that we know is happening, and that's what he tells the Christians, you know it's happening. I don't need to convince you. He'd already told them about this. I don't need to convince you of this. It's going to happen. And because of that, you need to be ready. The thief's not going to advertise when he comes, so you be ready for it. And the return of the Lord is the same way. Now, let's move to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, 
have a little discussion about this chapter because he, I think really in this chapter, really, really lays out what does it mean to be ready? What is the, what is the view of that event that makes you want to be ready? What are the consequences of not being ready? And that's exactly what he does in this chapter. And I think it's really beneficial for us. Verse number one, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing, enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. I've never thought about that statement before, really, until I really sat down and started digging into this chapter. That there's evidence of God's righteous judgment. You know, we often talk about biblical evidences and evidences of God's existence and the fact that he did create the universe and everything that is in it, but I haven't heard much discussion, if any, ever on evidence the fact that he has a righteous judgment, and that's exactly how he describes this here. And he talks about the Thessalonians, and if you back up to the first few verses in this chapter, he's again commending them on their behavior and their persecution, but he says that's evidence of God's righteous judgment. There's evidence by your behavior and how you behave with that persecution that there is a righteous judgment. And the judgment of that is that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. The judgment is because of how they behave, that they obeyed God, that they were doing what he asked them to do, that they were dealing with this persecution and taking it on the chin, that they were worthy of the kingdom. There's evidence of God's righteous judgment. He talked to the Philippians about something very similar. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Talking to them here about Christian living in general. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and, do not, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is it? It's evidence of God's righteous judgment. Don't worry about your opponents. Don't worry about the people that hate you. Don't worry about the people that are killing you, that are killing Christians because they serve me. Because the fact that you can deal with that persecution is evidence in my righteous judgment. It's evidence that you have salvation. And it's evidence of their destruction. And it's really a two-sided coin that he presents here. There's evidence of destruction and there's evidence of salvation. And that's what he's telling the Thessalonians here, that there's evidence of God's judgment. Let's be sure that our lives are lived in a way that are evidence that salvation exists. And I think the Thessalonians did a really good job of that. Now, verse number 5 through about 8 or 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is actually one sentence. And so I wasn't trying to just cherry pick the first part of that. And as we look at these next couple slides, we're just going to keep building that sentence out. But I I hate not to do it in context, and you'll see, I think, as we read it, why. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also in suffering, since, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's the other side of the coin. God does see it just to repay those that afflict you. God sees it just to repay sin. And that's a hard concept For humans in general, that's a really hard concept for modern Christianity, that God sees it just to repay sin. 
And we want to talk as humans about the love of God, and certainly we should talk about the love of God, but we should talk about how God is a just God. And that's what he's talking about here. And the important thing to draw out of this is that it's God's judgment. It's not our judgment. As humans, we want an eye for an eye. We want to take somebody that would persecute us or do wrong to us, and we want to see them get what's coming to them. And that's not our job to do. Paul clearly outlines here that it's God's job to do. But he said he will repay that affliction. Listen as he continues on. Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, here's the part where I think it's important to read this thing in a full sense. I've read verses 7 and 8 a thousand times in my life. I've used them in sermons. It's an excellent invitation passage. Verses 5 and 6, I've never put in context with them. And you've got to read this stuff in context. Because 7 and 8 should motivate somebody to obey the gospel 100%. But you really understand what he's trying to say to them here. Because God's going to repay those who afflict you. All those Jews that are causing you problems, all those people that are causing problems in the city of Thessalonica, God's going to repay them. But he's also going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. He's going to give relief to the Christians. So the twofold side of the coin is repayment for sin and rest for the rest for the faithful. Rest for those that follow. Rest for those that are troubled. Remember, you might remember the King James wording of that. To give rest for the troubled is what he says in the King James Version. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, who is that? Those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The message is that we need to be ready in the gospel, that we need to be ready with our lives. The message is there's rest for those who are ready and that there's vengeance for those who are not ready. And that's a very sobering passage that he's going to be coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that don't know God and that don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to be ready in the gospel. It means that you have to make a decision. It means that you decide whether you get your life right and that you live for him, that you obey him. And this isn't a study designed to talk about the mechanics of what it means to obey the gospel. Jason talked about most of those things last Sunday in his sermon and was certainly happy and want to talk about those things. It's not a, it's not a how to obey the gospel message, but it is a gospel message. It's a message on the gospel. It's the whole point of this. And it means that every human that walks the face of this earth has to make, has to make a decision. Listen to what he says in verse number nine. Those that obey not God... Those that do not know God and that don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. What it means is you have to make the most important decision of your life. Every person sitting in this room has to make a decision at some point in their life And there's men and women of all ages sitting in this room, and you might be 80 years old today and you've never made that decision. You have to make it at some point in your life. Or you might be a high school student today wondering if this is something that you should do. 
And you may or may not be ready to make that decision today, but you're going to have to make this decision at some point in your life, and it's the most important decision you'll ever make. Whether or not you believe the testimony, that's what he said to them, you believed our testimony. Do you believe the testimony? Do you know what the testimony is? It's, it's Jesus. The testimony is the gospel. And if you believe the testimony, you'll obey the gospel and know God. You'll serve God. And that's how you avoid the destruction that he's talking about. And I don't think it could be any clearer. You have to avoid the wrong side of God's righteous judgment. And many people in this room have made that decision before. And if you've made that decision and you believe the testimony, then I hope this brings you comfort. That's what this is designed to do. I hope that you can read these passages and take comfort in the fact that you don't have to worry about repaying the people that do you wrong in this life that you don't have to worry about the people that chase sin and try to drag you down with them, try to convince you that serving God and believing in Jesus is not the right way to go. You don't have to worry about that. You can take comfort in the fact that he's coming back and that he'll repay that. And if you're here today and you don't believe that testimony or you've never made that decision, I hope you'll carefully consider that decision because he's coming back and he's coming back in flaming fire, and he's going to take vengeance on those that don't know God and that don't obey the gospel. And I hope you'll carefully consider that this morning. If you haven't obeyed the gospel and you haven't been buried with him in baptism, consider that carefully and understand what the implications of that decision are because there are implications of not deciding to do that. As he concludes chapter 1 in 2 Thessalonians, he says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the great thing about all this. This doesn't require any significant effort on our part. You hear people say from time to time how um, anything in life worth having, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, I don't know if it's an actual quote, but Essentially, anything in life that's worth having is difficult. And I think, generally speaking, in terms of worldly things, I would agree with that personally. You know, you think about people that are extremely wealthy, generally they work hard for that. There's always the exception to the rule, but a lot of times they work hard for that. You think about people that are extremely fit, generally they work hard for that, and eat right, and do all the, make all the hard choices that you have to make to obtain that. Anything you want to point out in life, great athletes, great musicians, great whatever it is, spend a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it's very difficult to achieve, and it's very hard work, and it's just hard to get. I, some of you know that I, uh, about five years ago, I took up a martial art. I trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it's the most challenging thing physically that I've ever done in my life, and it's a martial art that's grappling-based, so essentially it's a bunch of guys many of whom are 15 or 20 years younger than me, trying to rip my head off or my arm off or choke me or whatever on a daily basis. And it's just exhausting and it's difficult and it takes a long time to learn and it's hard to retain and it's just hard all the way around. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. There's a belt system in that, like many martial arts, where you progress from a white belt to a blue belt to a purple belt to a brown belt and someday maybe a black belt. And it's the longest belt system of any martial art. And they give... There's kind of an in-between belt system where they'll put stripes on your belt if they think you've earned it. So, you know, you may, it may be two or three years between full belt rankings, but you may go six months and 
and the, the, the professor will give you a, a stripe on your belt. And it's, all it is is just a little piece of medical tape, sports tape that they use to wrap ankles with, and it's worthless and it means nothing. But whenever I get one of those stripes, it means more to me than anything in this life besides my faith and my family. And if you've done this, there's a couple people in this room that know what I'm talking about, but if you've done this, you know there's just nothing you can replace it with. There's no amount of money you could give me that means as much to me as that does. I know what it took to get there. I know the amount of work it took, the pain I went through, the amount of effort. Christianity is not that way. There's parts of it that are hard, but not obtaining salvation. You don't have to be in the game. Jesus got on the mats and literally got beaten and bruised and slandered and mocked, and he did all that stuff. And I get to sit on the sidelines and get the belt promotion. There's literally no work involved with it. That doesn't mean the life of a Christian is easy. I think we've demonstrated that with the Thessalonians for sure. But it, it costs nothing. There's no effort in obtaining salvation. It's like it's one of those that we would say about anything else in life, it's too good to be true. It literally costs nothing of me except to say yes and obey. It's the best deal you could ever get. We don't have to do some kind of great act, and we all get to ride the coattails of Jesus to salvation. And I think the Second Thessalonians 1 does a really great job of explaining what he meant to be ready, what we're talking about today. Be ready for his coming. And because of Jesus, we can be worthy in Christ. We can be worthy of the kingdom because of Christ. All right, that's 2 Thessalonians 1. So now, back to 1 Thessalonians 5. So he's talking about being ready, right? They, you don't know the time it's going to come. It's going to come as a thief in the night. And really, I think this is the attitude of the Christian is how he finishes this section in 1 Thessalonians 5. What's the attitude of the Christian toward his coming? But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us... Keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastfade of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So that's how a Christian should view it, that we're not going to sleep and slumber. You think about military, you hear about military operations, right? When they go on some kind of operation, there's always somebody keeping watch, right? They do watch watches. Maybe a couple of guys are getting asleep, but somebody's always watching. That's what he's talking about. You're not sleepy. You're not unexpected. You, you know what's going on. You're waiting for it. You're aware of it. You know the event, what the event entails. You know the implications of the event. Whether you choose to be on one side or the other, you know what's going to happen. And because of that, you're ready. You choose not to sleep. And many times in my life, I get lax in this. And we go about living day to day, and I worry about all the things i got to do on a daily basis, and I forget to be watchful. And it's a reminder to Christians that we should be that way. We should always be watchful of what's going on. It should always be on our mind, the second coming. And some of this, at the end of this, might remind you of Ephesians, where he talks about all the armor of God, and that's what he talks about. But what are the three things he mentions? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love is an armor that helps you with this. Ready for his coming. we got to be ready for it. He closes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
kind of midway through that chapter, he ends this discussion and discourse on the second coming. And he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. The most comforting part of all this is that God has no desire for us to feel his wrath. He's a just God. He's going to punish sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. He's going to punish it. But he has no desire for it. He has a desire for every man that they would be saved. And he has not destined us for wrath. And he's offered us a way of salvation. And because of that, we can encourage one another. And we can build each other up in the faith, just like he asked them to do. And you think about those men and women and all the things that they were going through. And how strong their faith at least appears looking back on history that they dealt with all those persecutions and all the things that go on in life. And many times you think about the things that we face in life, and it's embarrassing how weak our faith is at times. And let's use that to build each other up and encourage one another and know that we have a common salvation. Know that all these things that God is going to deal with, that we can avoid those and escape those. And hopefully after these studies on the second coming, you're more educated on that and your faith is built up on that. And I hope... We've convinced you this morning that you need to be ready for his return. And if you're here this morning and you are ready for his return, take comfort in these things and know that it's a good thing for you and know that it's coming back. And like we, we talked about last time, that that hope is that we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds and that we get to be with him forever. It's the way it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Forever and ever. And if you're here today and you haven't made that decision as we've talked about Think about your life. Think about what's important to you. Think about the things we've talked about today. Do you believe the testimony? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he's returning? Do you believe that he's coming back with flaming fire? Taking vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never obeyed the gospel, I would challenge you this morning to think about that decision. And we want to offer an invitation at this time and we would ask you to think about that and act on that. We have the water here to, to do that, to help you with that, and certainly a bunch of men and women here that would encourage you in that and desire for you to do that this morning, that we may comfort each other, that we can build each other in faith, that you can become part of the family of God and take comfort in that. If there's anybody here that needs help this morning, we invite you to come have a seat on the front as we sing the invitation song.